when we started the retreat, uh, one of the things that um, I mentioned in the opening night is that, um, you know, we come here and it's a very, at least we intend it to be a welcoming, safe place. We invite people to come in and find, you know, any way to settle in the hall, sit wherever you want, find any posture, you know, that, that supports you the best. Um, you, few people have some back issues, health issues, you can even lie down. Uh, do whatever it is that supports you to have the most comfort possible. And you don't have to make anything happen. All we're inviting you to do is to just be present with whatever it is that is happening. Very, very simple. And now that you have a few retreat days under your belt, you can take a look and see how was that for you? Just that simple thing, just to be present with ourselves. Of course, sometimes um, it's easy when we're getting what we want. Not so easy sometimes when we're getting what we don't want. And so this is a tremendous uh, place of learning. Um, but it's also even the beginning of not only the wisdom and the discernment to start to notice, wow, uh, uh, notice how uh, we just go for the pleasant, we pull away from the unpleasant, how we're kind of jerked around or really at the mercy of circumstances. That's a tremendous learning. There can also be a place to really start to open our hearts for compassion for ourselves and for others to see the situation that we're all in. Right? So I want to, I'll come back to that. You may be thinking, what do I mean, the situation that we're all in? So I want to explore that a little bit with you tonight. It's very common for people to, oftentimes people will say that their understanding is that the Buddha said life is suffering. Very, very common. But that's a mis misconception. It's not true. Buddhism acknowledges the obvious fact that life contains both happiness and misery, pleasure and pain. It's not denying that. Uh, I like, I'll give you an example, I like dark chocolate. And um, when I'm eating a piece of really good cho dark chocolate, there's no suffering. No suffering there. If I think that chocolate's going to do more for me than it's capable of, that's the setup for suffering. Right? But if I enjoy the chocolate, I have the taste, it's pleasant, and then I'm done. If I just let it go and move on, no problem. Right? And so let's back up a second and take a look at um, kind of what we, this, the situation really we're all in. I want to explore a little bit uh, just briefly uh, what is called the three characteristics or the three characteristics of all experience or sometimes three characteristics of existence. And if we just take a few moments on with it, I think it will really help illuminate kind of the essence of, of where of Dharma teachings and really why we're 
from a, from a Dharma perspective, what this practice is all about. Most of us, I'm including myself, all of us human beings, most of us spend most of our time trying to get, have, or hold on to more of those people, situations, things, and experiences that we think will make us happy and avoid those that we think will make us unhappy, whether we're conscious of it or not. Right? No one here is trying to have less of what they want in their life and more of what they don't want. Anybody doing that here? No. Anybody want more unpleasant experiences, unpleasant things to happen to you? And less good and pleasant things? No, of course not. That's part of being a human being, right? And that's okay. You're not doing anything wrong, except for one thing. In case you haven't noticed, sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get what you don't want. Right? So I think the invitation from the Dharma perspective is to perhaps see if we can start to make a shift where we look for our happiness and where we look for our well-being. Because if our happiness is tied up in having to have or not have certain experiences, that's a very fragile kind of well-being. Right? Because, uh, you know, life's uncertain. We have maybe a certain amount of control. I don't know how much of that's an illusion, if, if there's any control, but, you know, maybe... And, and we all are doing our best, right, to make life aim in the way we want it to go. I don't think we should stop doing that. I think that wouldn't make sense to take care of ourselves, right? Set ourselves, our lives up how we want them to be. And we, every one of us knows that doesn't always go our way. When we're getting what, when things are not, when we're not getting what we want, we can't wait for things to change. And when things, we are getting what, our, what we want, we become complacent and we forget and we just kind of think things will just keep going on and on as they have been, right? No experience is going to last, right? This is the first of those characteristics it's called impermanence. And we sh that topic, I'm only just mentioning it briefly, it's so important that it actually, I want to encourage you, I think it, it really deserves a lifetime of exploration, investigation, and inquiry. It's a characteristic, we call it a characteristic of, of, of existence, if you will, or of all experience. No experience that you have, can ever have, is going to last. So this gets back to, it's like my chocolate, right? But all of life is kind of like that. Right? Have you, is there any experience you've ever had that didn't change? No. Right? So this is the situation that we all find ourselves in. I don't know how we got here. How did this, how did this all get started? What's going on? I don't know. But we're all here and we're all in the same boat. Take a moment really to reflect on that. I reflect on impermanence, and I'm not going to get into death, really talking about that here today, but just 
a lot in my life. And I find it, uh, rather than being, um, it can be frightening, it can be discomforting, it can scare us. And so, you know, then we need to be respectful. Maybe our, our wisdom or equanimity, maybe it hasn't caught up with that insight into impermanence. And so then maybe we'll bring in other ways of working with it because we, you know, we want, we don't, we want to find what supports us, not what scares us. But, you know, whether we like it or not, um, no experience we ever can ever have is going to last. And that's really what the Buddha is pointing to. And when Nikki used this term dukkha, that's the word that's often translated as suffering. That's the second of these characteristics. She said there is the word suffering, and that's fine to use it. it would, I, that wouldn't have been my choice, but she named two other words that I liked a lot. She said unsatisfactory and unreliable. Right? There's an unreliable quality to life because, as I was just saying, we only, right? We're all trying our best for better or worse. Right? We're doing the best we can. So we have to look at our lives. How's it going for you? Hopefully we all have experienced some happiness and joy in our lives, some points, and we all certainly all know what it's like to suffer. You know, as, as human beings, there's a mix for both of us. And depending on our life situation, some of us might have a, be leaning, you know, more on the suffering side or more on the happiness side at any point in our life. So that's going to be highly individual. There is a quote that I really love from the second great Taoist master. The first was Lao Tzu, the second one was Zhuang Tzu. And it goes, I think this is pretty close. I cannot tell if what people consider happiness is happiness or not. All I know is when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away headlong, grim and obsessed, caught up in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change direction, all the while claiming to be just on the point of attaining happiness. So that may or may not resonate for you, but it resonates for me. So here's the situation we find ourselves in. When we reflect that, first of all, um, I'm going to come back to the compassion piece here a lot tonight also, uh, because we really, you know, it shows that, you know, we're all in this together. We're trying our best and we see how much, hopefully we have, you know, uh, happiness but also how much suffering we can have. You know, someone today brought up and it comes up all the time. It's like, wow, you know, you Buddhists, uh, it's like all you talk about, it's like the all suffering all the time channel. And, and uh, gosh, it's all suffering. And when you actually look at the texts, the, the, the old ancient texts, there's actually, there are a lot of places in there that talk about uh, bliss and joy and a liberation of the mind and all that's there. And, Really, most fundamentally, this is considered to be a path leading to the end of suffering. But to come to it, so we want to understand our happiness, our joy. We, want to, we really want to know all the parts that are good and beautiful and right in us. And, that, and I talked about that for those of, of you who were here last night when we did a little reflection at the end. 
it's important to know all that and get in touch with it. We want to be have some facility with everything that's good in us so, so it's accessible when we need it. But also when we want to understand, if we want to understand our suffering, well, how do you understand it? You need to explore it, come to know it. And so we also need to spend time on that side of it. And so it's true, there's a lot of emphasis on the suffering side. If we want to come to an end of suffering, then, well, that end of suffering, a lot of that we have to understand the suffering so we can understand its cause, what leads to it, the way to let go of it and to, and to free ourselves from it, right? This is actually, I'm not going to get into the Four Noble Truths so much tonight, but and if you don't know the Four Noble Truths, if you're new, if you hang around uh, in the Dharma world for any length of time, you'll, you'll just hear it many, many times. But um, um, I'll say a little bit about it, but this is, this is this Four Noble Truths. And the first of these Noble Truths is that there is this dukkha, there's this unreliable or inherently unsatisfactory nature to life because it's not fully within our control. And even if you could control things and get what you want, nothing lasts. And so that's what we mean when we say life is dukkha. There's an inherently unsatisfactory quality because it's not ultimately. So if you could, you know, when, uh, when I was young, uh, in my 20s, and, and um, I can't remember exactly, but it was one of these like Tony Robbins or one of these people of, you know, uh, kind of self-help things. And he had this whole, I can't, something about, you know, you can create your life how you want it to be or something like that. And I thought, okay, that, that sounds good. I want to do that. And so I started reflecting, well, what, what would my dream life be? Because then, then, then I, and I made a list. And I had all kinds of things in there, like what would it look like financially, the kind of work I would do, relationship-wise. Um, when I was young, I used to want, I had, used to have a bench press contest with my brother. I wanted to out bench press my, you know, those days are long gone. <laughs> <laughs> now I just want to be able to like get up out of bed without something hurting. And that's my new goal <laughs> when I write a new one. So that's another thing, like things last, don't last. Uh, some of you are a little too young to know this, but um, it, 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 it's, it's not just outer experiences. It's us. It's your mind and body. If we're clinging to, you know, if you're clinging to your youth, <laughs> I had no idea when things started to slow down. I'm not that old, I'm only 62. Some of you, you know, even have some years on me, but um, it's not a path to happiness. When I was, um, you know, in California, the way they do the driver's license is um, you you'd get your photo. Then a few weeks later, it comes in the mail, your driver's license. And then five years later, I got a thing in the mail. So I didn't have to go down and take a photo and just send in a renewal. And the new driver's license came in the mail. But it was the same old photo. That's me. And then... Uh, um, um, you know, five years more later, uh, just something in the mail, I sent it in, and uh, same old photo, yep, there I am. <laughs> wow, haven't changed a bit. <laughs> five years later, now it's been 15 years. This time they say I have to come in and get a photo. Go down, take the photo. Everything's fine until 
the new one comes in the mail. I pull out the new one and I pull out my old one. It's just like, what the hell happened? <laughs> I look in the mirror. I see some old guy looking back at me. Where did my youth go? What happened? Nothing went wrong. It's just what happens. My, right? The answer to my question is, it's what happens when you get older. That's impermanence. If I'm clinging to my youth, it's a setup for suffering. If I'm not having a problem with the fact of, if I have, it's sort of these are cliches, but they're really true. If I can find a way to be at peace with life as it is, including its impermanent nature, including the dukkha, which is the inherently unreliable or unsatis ultimately unsatisfactory nature, I don't look to any particular experience for my well-being. And then the dukkha doesn't turn into the suffering way we talk about dukkha. I don't suffer. I don't suffer when my chocolate, it's a great example because the chocolate's of no consequence. I mean, you know, thinking about it right now, I, you know, it, if I, I could, it, it would be nice to have a nice little piece because I have a little bit of a, I have a little craving around chocolate, right? But it's no big deal. You just let it go, right? What about all the places where not so easy to let go? This is where we need, again, it's the compassion for ourselves and also the compassion for everyone else because look around. Even the people here on retreat who annoy you, they're your fellow sufferers too. They're trying their best. They want what you want, which is to be happy. We're all trying to find our way. It's worth reflecting on that and then to notice, you know, what happens to my heart in relationship to others, right? So um, that's a good thing just to keep in mind, especially, uh, you know, for people we have difficulties with. You know, what's it like to stand in that person's shoes, to see, you know, they're really not so different from me in some fundamental ways. So there's this idea of impermanence and then dukkha and unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And, the, uh, when, and especially it's because of the clinging. It's because of all this, it's when we cling, we try to hold on to things, that's the problem. When you're here meditating, you know, and some of you may be waiting to hear about what's this bliss I keep hearing about. We haven't really talked about this in this retreat, but maybe you heard that somewhere. Or, or the inner peace, or boy, you know, everybody I look around and they all look like Buddhas sitting there so quiet. And I remember when one of my first retreats, I think it was like 1970 or 71, and Ram Dass was teaching and he had some other guy up there and I was really new. And just like you, the ones of you whose knees are like this, I was the one like this and I was sitting, but then nobody told me to put cushions under it. And oh man. And it was like these two or three hour sits and there was this guy up there and he literally was fierce. And every 10 or 15 minutes in the microphone, he just, you know, about you know, 50 people in the room, don't move. <laughs> kind of the opposite of, and I'm just like, oh my God, don't move. And it felt like a knife in my knee. Uh, I remember that, and I remember looking around, and everybody else looked like these Buddhas, and I thought, look at them all. Everybody's blissed out but me. I, I didn't know. I didn't know, right? What's really true is, maybe some people are, but basically, everybody's like you. The details are different. 
We're all trying to be happy. We're all trying to find our way. We're all doing the best we can. Nobody here is not doing the best they can. Not one single person. Now I know that some of you heard me say that and what happened in your mind, the ones with the self-critical mind is, oh, no, yes I can because you don't know. I'm too lazy or I don't have follow-through. I'm too... If you could do it better, you would. So let me just take a little side tour here for a moment. I have good news and bad news. What, what do you want first, good news or the bad news? <laughs> I'll give you the bad news. You're doing the best you can. Eh, it looks like this. Here's the good news. You're doing the best you can. Eh, it looks like this. Feel the difference? The kindness? We can kind of hold ourselves with a little, you know, little, give ourselves a break a little bit. If you could do it better, you would. You don't have to beat yourself up or blame yourself. If you have a pattern that doesn't stop beating yourself up and blaming yourself, and sometimes, you know, we, get, we all have these conditioned patterns, every one of us. That's a very common pattern. If that's one of yours, self-critical. You have a lot of company. Again, it's not easy necessarily to stop it. You gotta remember, these are just patterns. They're like little computer programs. You know, if you go to your computer and you click on the icon for an Excel spreadsheet, you're never gonna get Microsoft Word. It always runs Excel. That's what the program does. The critical mind, that's what it does. It's just a, it's a pattern. Yeah. We start to see it that way. We don't have to take it so, I mean, it's personal in the sense it's happening to you, but it's kind of impersonal. Who knows how it got in there? Maybe you do know, but it got programmed in. Next time it comes up, if you have enough mindfulness, so we're gonna get into this importance of mindfulness in a bit, you can thank it for sharing, then let it go and go about your business. So if we, if we then can agree that, all right, this idea of non-clinging might be a good idea, then it's like, okay, what will support us to be able to do that? Right? What will be helpful for us to do that? I think what the Dharma is really pointing to, and I got a little sidetracked, but what I wanted to say earlier was, it's making a shift then, not in, is my happiness tied up in the experience I'm having? Can it be more about how am I relating to whatever it is that's happening? That's a really big shift, right? And so a lot of what we're talking about is, is the freedom, the liberation to uh, um, be able to work with, to be with, to find the freedom with, um, even if it's, it's kind of unpleasant. And an image that I use often, some of you have heard this, but I really like it, is if you imagine a circle, and you're in the center of the circle, and you think of the edge of the circle, the circumference, as being everything within the circle are experiences for which you can be present with, with a peaceful mind, with an equanimity. 
And if something is outside the circle, it's too much for you, then those are the experiences that are they're too strong or their quality is such. You can't work with them, they're too much. And one way you can think, uh, and, and we all have an edge. I remember this, another story I've told often when I was, so I started this practice when I was 18. I think I must have been about 20. I was really idealistic. I went to the dentist to get a, a tooth filled. <laughs> oh, this wasn't funny at the time. And I, I said to the dentist, uh, he was going to give me the Novocaine. I said, uh, that, that's okay. Um, <laughs> don't numb me up. <laughs> I'm just going to uh, s- sit present with whatever his sensations arise and, <laughs> and pass away. As <laughs> soon as he started drilling, I only remember two things. I did do it. To this day, I'll bet you my handprints are still <laughs> e- from gripping the hand rests. You know, I, I don't know, why didn't I ask? Just tell him, wait, sorry, you better numb me up. <laughs> I don't know. So I toughed it out. I wasn't working with it. So please excuse my language, but I do remember, uh, it's a little rough language, but I do remember the, you know, sometimes memories get embellished, but I have this memory of a line that is going, Shankman, you have really done it this time. That's not that, r- it was just some rougher language. <laughs> than some experiences are too much for it. It's not about your intention. So part of the practice is learning, it's, it's expanding the circle to encompass more and more of the experience of, us, of our lives. Maybe if you're a Buddha, there's no edge. I haven't gotten there yet, I don't know. But for all of us, we can find that we really are able to find the liberation, the freedom within all of the experiences of our lives and who and what we all are as beings without beating ourselves up. There's a real place of self-acceptance Self-acceptance is not complacency, but it's just, uh, you know, it, 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 it has some wisdom and discernment. It understands just this is how we are, how we, how we work. It has some kindness for ourselves. This is the learning. You don't have to be good at it right now, but it's what we're all, it's the exploration that we're all involved in. This is where this practice is aiming, right? So then if we want to learn how to kind of let go of around our clinging, um, see, you, another misconception is that people sometimes think Buddhism says desire is bad. You're not supposed to have any desires. That's also misconception. Actually, wholesome desire is important. You know, if you didn't desire, if you didn't want to practice, you wouldn't do it. We suffer because of clinging, and the clinging is conditioned. It happens in our minds all because of a particular kind of desire, craving when desire gets so strong that we can't let something go, we have to have it or get rid of it or, right? Then it moves us into clinging. That's the kind of desire that gets us into trouble. So what would help us uh, free ourselves from that? You'll sometimes then hear people say, well, maybe we should be detached. They'll hear that kind of word. Or you'll hear the word um, uh, disenchantment dispassion, to be disillusioned, detached. And so, and those are fine words, but we have to be careful about the meaning. 
because they can have negative connotations and we lose the actual essence of what it's pointing towards. So take, we'll take um, um, to be dispassionate or disenchanted. What does it mean to be disenchanted? It can, it can have a connotation of kind of let down. Maybe I was at work and I was part of a team and we worked really hard and we didn't meet the goal and we kind of gave up. We became disenchanted or disillusioned, right? It's kind of negative. What does it really mean? To be disenchanted means to no longer be enchanted. If you remember the old fairy tales, the sorcerer casts a spell, you're enchanted. You've actually lost touch with reality. And then they have a happy ending. The spell is broken. You're no longer enchanted. You're back to reality. You just can see things clearly as they actually are. That's what it is to be disenchanted. To be disillusioned is the same thing. It's not to be let down. It means I'm not caught in illusion. Right? Disenchanted, disillusioned. Dispassionate is similar. You might say, well, what's wrong with passion? Well, okay, that's fine with passion. Um, if any of you have, um, I've had the experience, I've been married for 20 years, but um, I've had the experience of being in newly in love, a lot of passion. I mean, it's funny, I remember, you know, three months later when it kind of settled down, the passion kind of settled down, all those cute little things that I love, uh, they were endearing, now they're annoyances. <laughs> Something about the passion colored my view. Maybe. So, you know, passion's fine, but it can, it just, it just, it, it can color our perspective. I'm not judging it to be right, a positive or negative thing, right? What about this detachment? That's one you hear a lot. This is a very interesting one. You know, as human beings, we are actually hardwired to attach to a primary caregiver, right? Infants must attach to, it can be the mother or one or more primary caregivers, and they will not thrive and actually can die. There was, uh, there, some of you may know, in some orphanages, maybe in some of these uh, uh, Eastern European countries, and infants who didn't, you know, they weren't touched or anything, some of them didn't survive. If we don't get healthy attachment, there's all these different kinds of attachments, I know a little about it, um, right? It can interfere with our ability, with our functioning as adults or our, how we form relationships. So a healthy attachment is hardwired into our DNA, right? And what is it, and, and there can be this word like, to, it, can, it can have a sense of being disconnected. That's where we can fall into trouble. If we think being detached is disconnected. What is it we're doing when we're meditating here? We come in, we sit down or whatever posture, you close your eyes. Some, some people could meditate open, but mostly we close our eyes and we bring our attention inward. We're cultivate, we're deeply and profoundly connecting. It's not disconnecting, it's actually consciously connecting with ourselves, with our own being. So it's the opposite of disconnecting. If you go to a loved one and say, I'm disconnected from you or detached from you, that's just not gonna go over very well. If you say, I'm not clinging to you, they'll probably appreciate it. You get the difference? So a way I like to think about this is not about 
dis, I don't tend to use the word detachment. I, non-clinging is a good word. I really like the word, word disentangled. Disentangled. So one way you could sum up all of these practices is can we find a way to live in the world, be, be in, we don't have to be disconnected, detached, none of that, but to be free, disentangled. What would that look like to live in a way, to, what, what might that be to find our way through life in a way that's disentangled, but still fully present and connected and engaged, right? So that's some ways I would put it out there you may want to think about it. Traditional language is, is uh, of, of non-clinging and the traditional way to talk about this whole path is liberation through non-clinging, right? So that was everything I've just said. I was trying to convey a sense of, you know, what from a Dharma perspective, like what's, what's the teaching really all about just in a kind of a simple way. And I hope that was useful because today in the, in the uh, practice discussions, several people brought up, well, why are we doing this? What's it all about? You know, is it stress reduction? Is it about learning to work with chronic pain? Is it about learning, helping me sleep better? And, you know, there's all that is, you know, kind of impo is important. From a Dharma perspective, th th there's also this more fundamental place of the liberation through non-clinging. All right. So if you're signed up for, okay, I'm on board. That's a good idea. I think that would be a good idea to free my mind as much as possible from clinging. Great. Won't take long for you to notice that uh, you can't do it. I, I mean, yes, you can do it in a given moment, of course. You'll have moments of it, but the right causes and conditions come along. You're caught right back up in things again. We need some help. You know, we don't need the Buddha actually to tell us about suffering. We don't, right? We know all about it. We're experts. What we're not so expert at and what we need help with is what to do. And this is where then these practices come in, right? Why we do practices like meditation. So I want to shift a little then, and I would like to suggest, and this is just my own take on things, that I want to name what I consider to be the building blocks of meditation practice. I want to name four building blocks. Regardless of the style of practice you engage in, they're all some mix of these building blocks, I would say. So to begin with, it's often said, remember when we took the precepts, the five precepts, training precepts when we came here? That is part of what in the Pali language is called sila, S-I-L-A, sila. And it means morality, ethical training. Morality. A virtue actually is a word. I love the word virtue. So that's what we're talking about. You find the words that resonate for you. That's often considered to be foundational before you meditate or anything. You've got to have a foundation of ethics and morality. I want to suggest something that um, I feel like is more fundamental than morality, sila. This isn't the Buddha, this is just me saying this, but I really feel it. it's uh, self-compassion. I feel that compassion and especially self-compassion is a fundamental foundational building block of meditation. And I say that because without that, 
even undertaking something as wholesome and good with a sincere intention of virtue, it can come with the twinge of self-judgment and it doesn't take long to see all the ways you fall short or we're not good enough and we beat ourselves up and we're unkind to ourselves. If we can start to bring the self-compassion and kindness, even if you're not very good at it, that's okay, you don't have to have any skill at it. Just have the intention or the aspiration to grow in kindness and self-compassion. That's all you need. And with time, you'll find your way from those you know, tenuous first steps and it will grow. Just trust me on this. If it can happen for me, given I could tell you sort of my history of self-esteem issues and despair through my teens and 20s, and if the healing can happen for me, it can happen for anybody. It really can, right? A little psychotherapy didn't hurt me either. Don't, don't get me wrong, but uh, uh, Dharma practice is just amazing. These things can grow. So I won't say too much more about that, but I hope that's kind of maybe self-evident about how foundational compassion in general is. And I was just emphasizing the self-compassion and, and kindness too, okay? And then also then there's three other elements I want to mention here, which we've already talked about. And they're mindfulness, concentration, and insight. So let me briefly say a little about each of them. And this will be very, very brief. We've already been talking about them. So mindfulness. Well, maybe we all have a sense of mindfulness, but you know, I'll, just to get on the same page, I'll give you my definition of mindfulness. There's the practice of mindfulness and there's the mental state of, my, of being mindful. They're not the same thing. They're I mean, close. So the state of being mindful, I simply define it as not being lost on automatic pilot. Not being lost on automatic pilot. And hopefully it's clear what I mean, but you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you lost, they lost their mindfulness. They went to sleep or they went unconscious. They lost awareness. They didn't go to sleep. They're conscious. They just got caught up and lost in things. And so when we kind of wake up out of that, it's just the knowing of what's happening. That's what I mean when we're not on automatic pilot. You can just know what's happening when it's happening. It's very, very simple. And you can know, you can be mindful of anything. You can be mindful of your body and experiences of your body. What's happening in your mind, in your heart. You can be mindful of other people and what's happening with them and how you're interacting or relating to other people. And so we start to notice uh, how we relate to ourselves. We can be mindful of that. Mindfulness gives us some space between what happens. It gives us the, it, actually, it doesn't automatically give you any space. I don't, I, this is, maybe other people would disagree. I don't, I don't think it does. It gives you the possibility of some space and freedom. But if the energy of something's too strong, have you ever had it happen where you know what's happening? You're not lost in it, but the power's so strong, you still want to say that bad thing to that person because it's so strong in the moment. The energy of it's so strong. Later you regret it, but in the moment, like you really, it, maybe it feels good or something, you know, when you go with it. 
So that's a different thing. Maybe I'll be able to come back to that possibly about working with these strong energies that can pull us even, right? We have to be respectful of those. But we can know that it gives us the possibility rather than being caught on automatic pilot. Then we have the possibility of knowing what's happening and getting some space between what happens and our response so that we can have a wise response rather than a reactive response. So that's the idea of mindfulness. We have to, right? And so then there's the application of mindfulness. And this is in the practice, then we use that mindfulness, that kind of awareness, and we can use it in the service of, remember in this tradition, it's all in the service of, you could either say disentangling or liberation through non-clinging. So if we keep that as the background, how can we use mindfulness to help free us from clinging? So I just named one way in which just being aware in the moment, we can start to have some choices. And we could say a lot more about that. Another way mindfulness helps us is we can direct our mindfulness in certain ways to strengthen other qualities that can help us. And this is getting into the concentration and the insight. So for example, if you're one of the practices we've been teaching here among others is called mindfulness of breathing. If you're putting your awareness onto your breathing, it's called being mindful of your breathing. We're directing our mindfulness very specifically in a certain way. And that can serve us in a number of ways. I'll just say a little bit about this term concentration. It's kind of a problematic, um, potentially problematic translation of a word in Sanskrit. You don't have to know Pali in Sanskrit, but occasionally we throw a few out that are nice to know. The word is samadhi, samadhi. It actually means undistracted, if you go to the root meaning, undistracted. But we translate it as concentration, that's okay. And I don't have time to get into it, it's a big topic about what is an, there are a number of ways that an undistracted mind can evolve, actually. There's a few main ways. if you, I can talk to you more about that if you want, but basically think of it as the mind becoming more steady so it's not jumping around all over the place. A clarity comes with it as, the, as this samadhi, this undistractedness deepens. A natural, as those of you who, who've experienced this before, your awareness and your ability to perceive and discern anything is just operates on a whole different level because because of the support of this undistracted steady presence right so you can see when we have a mind like that then we're even we we notice even more subtly the places that maybe we hadn't even noticed where there's clinging on subtler levels and we also are more aware on subtler levels when we're really resting in the stream in the current of non-clinging so we're aware on ever subtler levels. We see naturally, perceive naturally when the causes of our suffering more, a lot of things on subtler levels become just effortlessly more clear. I don't want to spend much more time on that, but it's a huge big piece, the ability of the mind to settle. And um, so a lot of what we're doing 
when we're working with mindfulness, there's really two aspects. There's the being present with things, learning how to be present with things in a non-reactive, equanimous way. And there's the training ourselves to settle more, to be more present, right? Um, that quality of mind that I'm talking about is very powerful when we turn it towards insight. So I'll say a little more about insight, but we have to also be careful because insights happen not just out of the times when our minds are the most clear. Some of the most important insights come into the times when we're the least clear. So let me say what I mean then by insight. This is my own, there's sort of the traditional ways it's talked about, and I'll maybe mention those, but the way I think of insight is any understanding, any perception, anything you see, know, experience that leads to the liberation through non-clinging. I call that an insight. So there can be psychological insights and just having a psychological insight, it, generally those are good for us and will help us tremendously. They may not necessarily be insights in the Dharma, Dharma perspective may just be learning, it's like, okay, you know, I had a difficult relationship with my mother and I see how that carries over in relationships to other people, so, you know, or that kind of a thing, for example. I hope it didn't trigger anyone off about your mother or anything, but, um, you know, but we've all got our own stories and um, I just picked one of mine, that's all. But, um, <laughs> but um, so those can, those can help us. Those same kind of insights, I this is just me again. I call them Dharma insights if they're in the, held within the perspective of where Dharma is aiming through the liberation through non-clinging. Cling, I don't want to throw out psychological insights. I think they can be very, very important and sometimes necessary. Sometimes we're sitting here meditating and I'll just make up an example. Uh, maybe we're sitting here and we realize, hmm, I can't pay attention to my breath because I have a lot of tension. What's that about? Let me try to relax. By the way, I, I hope this also doesn't trigger anyone out. I'm just making up an example. If this happens to be going on for you, it's, it's you know, I, but, you know, just for, you know, oh, I realize, uh, well, what's this tension about? Let me hang out with that. Put my mindfulness in my belly. What's that? Maybe I have an old memory. Wow, I remember a time that happened to me in my life. Maybe I wasn't safe. I notice I kind of go through life with a stance that things aren't safe. Uh, even to sit here quietly and be with my belly, I'm kind of tense and not, or I'm just, that would be an example of an important, you might call it a psychological, I suppose you could say that insight, but maybe that really helps disentangle us in how, our relationship to life. So those are all important. Traditionally, insights tend to be talked about of insights into those three characteristics of experience I said impermanence, dukkha, and what we call not self or no self. And that basically means the impermanence of your own being. So just as a quick example, my own experiences of those have tended to come out of the deeper states of the samadhi and the concentration. And, you know, like, so for example, if I asked you, um, take a moment and notice any experience right now, feel your body, hear sounds, whatever. And if I were to ask you to say, can you feel the experience? You would say, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. 
can you notice that it's changing? You might say, well, now that you mention it, uh, yeah, I can be, I mean, I'm mostly aware of the experience itself, but yeah, if I make a point, I can notice that it's changing. I've had times, again, this has happened more when I've been on longer retreats and when it's flipped completely around. And if you ask me, I'd say, well, what I'm, I, the, the, the phenomena, the fact of change is what's popping out to my awareness. Well, if you ask me, yeah, I can notice the experience, but mostly it's actually change itself is just what's predominant. It's hard to explain it, but when you experience it, it's just what's happening. That would be an example of a very deep insight, direct experiential into impermanence, say. And you can have similar, I won't get into them because of time, into these other characteristics. Those are kind of traditional ways. And those are important. But there's a lot of other ways that um, insights can arise. It's not just that. A lot can come when we're, when we're having, when our minds are clear and are really concentrated. There's a lot that can happen in formal meditation during the times when you can't concentrate. We want to be very, very careful not to miss the opportunity for growth that those times offer us. Because it's so easy to think, well, wow, I had this. So let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer. But what's a good meditation? Just think about it. We all know, right? What's a bad meditation? Probably most of us judge it by how pleasant or unpleasant it is or maybe by how concentrated we are, things like that. When your body's cooperating, it's not hurting, your mind's clear, you're not feeling like you're going to jump out of your skin if that bell doesn't ring in about one second, that would be a good meditation. And we all know what a bad meditation is, right? And so maybe you're still waiting for one of those good meditations to come, but keep hanging there. They come for everyone, even for you, I promise you. But often what happens is, you know, you had your good meditation and it's great and wow, this retreat is wonderful, it's fantastic and you get up and you go to your walk and you come back in and you're just sit and you're in hell. What happened? And it feels like it all fell apart. But nothing went wrong. It didn't fall apart. It just changed. Remember that characteristic that no experience is going to last? So if you don't know, let me tell you now so you'll know ahead of time. Your good meditations are going to turn, I mean, I'm using the word good and bad, they're not, but you know, just to be a little humorous about it, your good and bad, your good's are going to turn to bad, your bad's are going to turn to good. It's just, it's changing just due to the energy level. You know, we have biorhythms through the day. Sometimes we don't know what it's about. You tap into some old pattern and you're dealing with something emotionally or maybe you just, you've hit a wall and you just, I'm just done for today, whatever it is. It's just what's happening in the moment, right? A lot of learning can come when we can start to shift and a big, big shift came in my own practice when I started to get just as interested in my suffering as I was in my bliss. That was a big shift for me.
big shift, right? So that's a whole, I wish I had more time, I'm running out of time, but that's an interesting thread, like, well, what, you know, what might, I'll just leave that there, maybe if you don't know what that might be, I'll just put it out as just a, maybe a little something possibly intriguing. What might that be? Not faking it, but we'll leave that f for now, right? One of the things I think can help us a lot if we bring the experimental attitude. The experimental attitude is not afraid of anything that might happen. It's only looking to see what actually is happening and then what is needed, what's most skillful in the moment. Another image that I often use but I like, you know, if we were here in this hall and maybe part of the ceiling, a piece of wood cracked, so they hired the carpenter to come in and fix the crack. The carpenter's not going to come in and look up and say, oh, darn it, I have to use a nail. I wanted to use a saw. They just look at what's happening and they have a lot of tools in the toolkit. And they just pull the right tool and take care of business. Right? But what do we do? We come to meditation and it's like, I wanted a nail, I wanted a saw. You know, I wanted this and I'm getting that. Right? Non-clinging is not only the fruit of practice, it is also the path of practice. So part of the path is cultivating these this, the samadhi is part of the path. The insight is part of the path. And I will just mention, I actually wanted to spend a lot of time, but I just don't have the time, but I think it's very important, especially for those of you who are new, there's a huge range of ways in which this insight meditation is taught. And I just want to, just for now, just say some teachers and practitioners really emphasize the concentration side of it. They're just seeing the, how helpful it is. And you'll hear a lot about that and really staying with the breath and staying with the breath even when you open up to other things and are doing mindfulness and insight. Other teachers may put much less emphasis on like breath or some other primary um, and just open up to the flow of experiences and aren't really interested, aren't emphasizing the concentration. They figure you get all the concentration you need just by moment to moment being aware of what's happening. Many, many ways in which mindfulness, concentration, insight, hopefully they all have the compassion. And if they don't, um, you have to see if you want to hang out in that scene or not, you know, you'll make your own choice around that. But certainly the mindfulness, insight, and concentration are all in different mixes with each other. There's no right or wrong. It's all great practice. It's all a question of finding what your own style and that's really important if you, they're just not a right or wrong or any, none are better than any others. It's finding what works best for you and that comes with trial and error in time. That's all I'll say about the sort of the family, the family of, you know, of different kinds of, pra of meditation practices, insight meditation, concentration meditation, all these different styles. If we can bring the experimental attitude, you do the best you can. Not always easy. We're not afraid because we make our best judgment. Sometimes we don't know and so we use our best intuition about, well, how do I work right now? 
try it out. Even if it doesn't work, you learned. You haven't, it's not a missed opportunity at all. Oh, don't do that again. <laughs> that was counterproductive. Okay, that's learning. Right? And so more over time, our intuition and our just seeing and knowing the way becomes ever more clear. That's the experimental attitude. It's not afraid. It just looks to see what's happened. Right? And so even in a given moment in your meditation, say you're being with mindfulness of breathing. Maybe you're giving it quite a lot of emphasis. A few times already on this retreat, people have said, well, what do I ask questions? What do I do then when something else comes up that's strong and it's, it's not easy to stay with the breath? It's not one answer. Maybe stay with the breath. Maybe you turn to connect with, or not even turn to, allowing yourself to open to, maybe is a way to say it, the other experience. But you let the breath come in with you as an ally, as an aid and support. Maybe you let go of the breath completely and just open to this new experience. You've, you, you know, and then when you're ready, you come back to the breath, say. Maybe you say, you know, I want to actually actively, not just stay with it, I want to actively investigate a little bit. So you kind of, there's a little, you know, more active engaging with and feeling your way through and into, maybe in the body or in the heart of the mind. So maybe that's the way. You, you know, there's lots of different tools in the toolkit. It's not just one way. You need time and experience. So we're coming to the end here. I just want to say a a few more things. Several people today, and I've heard this many times, have talked about, well, what happens when I leave the retreat? We're not, this isn't a go- uh, leave the retreat talk because we're still here and you know, it's not the last day, but um, you know, I'm gonna go home and then I kind of lose the retreat and I'm back to and I, you know, whatever. I yell at my kids too much or I'm too reactive or whatever. What do I do? And I think the answer for that, and it's really the answer for all of life is, is that we do the best we can and we take some time to stay in touch with our good intention, to really reflect on what, what do I want my life to be about in the deepest or highest sense? What's of most value and importance? And we try to reflect on that, I would say every day or when you can remember, and keep that alive. And then practice as much as your time and you know, life will allow. And, but in a given moment, you have the kind of reactive patterns that you have in your life. You can't, you can't do better at be other than you are. And you bring the best you can. And again, in the spirit of being open and receptive with the re- experimental attitude in the present moment, you do your best and we learn. And we know ahead of time already that we're, going to, we're not going to be perfect and we're going to fall down a thousand times if we can hold ourselves to know that in, by definition, until we're Buddhas ourselves, there are places of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds. I find that very freeing because we're not doing anything wrong. It's what it is to be a human being, right? And so if you want, so I'll just end with this. 
I have an aspiration, some of you have heard this, I talk about it a lot, it's a real aspiration, to live in a way so that my heart never closes off to any living beings, ever. And that's a real aspiration and I, I, it's very dear to me. Uh, and of course I have lots of opportunities to see where there's more work to be done, right? But I don't beat myself up about it. I see those as opportunities. And when a situation arises where there's, say, maybe there's an annoyance, if I can remember my intention, that person's done me a favor. Because that hidden neural pattern was in there, dormant, waiting to sprout those seeds when the right conditions came together. It's, it's a conditioned pattern. Well, how do you see your conditioned patterns? Where are they? You can't see your conditioning directly. You can only get to it indirectly when those neural pathways light up when in, in the face of a certain experience that you encounter. And then, oh, I get to see the pattern. So I like to try and stay more open rather than uh, I'm not getting what I want in life and it's not going my way. I hold it within the Dharma perspective of a liberation through non-clinging, that just happens to be something that's important for me. I hope it is for you. And then what are my intentions and aspirations in relationship to that, for example? And what, you don't have to think small. It can be big. Maybe it's whatever your, your own is. My heart never closes off. And then now, let me receive what happens in service of training and showing me the way but still holding myself with kindness. And then it's, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay if I act in a way that causes suffering. I'm not saying that. But it's okay. I, I actually, it's, it's not so important to me how kind or unkind my heart is in a given moment. How I work with what arises in the moment is what's important to me. That's the important. I think I do a pretty decent job with having a kind heart, but I'm just saying, it's not, I'm not judging it by that. So my practice is actually, I still have a formal sitting practice, uh, you know, pretty strong practice, but really my day-to-day -day practice uh, has gotten very simple. And I think to me, the daily life part has really become for me the most important for insight. Because it's, it's really come down to, in the places where I'm resting with equanimity and an open heart, you know it. It's not egotistical, but you're aware and you just rest at peace and go about your business. And when my heart closes or there's some kind of clinging, my, it's really simple. Let go of clinging, open the heart. Let go of clinging, open the heart. And you just know what's happening in the mind as a fruit of training our minds. And you, it's just known. And then I'm not judging by, oh, I'm closed off. It's like, oh, it's an opportunity to, to let go, open the heart. So we use things in that way. And then we can actually be, feel a gladness to know that we're really engaged in the practice, we're really doing it. Yeah. Finally, at some point, we go from being the learners to really, we start to connect in with the own, our own inner teacher more and more. That doesn't mean we get to a place where no one can tell us anything anymore. We, we want to be careful and not be arrogant. But we start over time with experience to know what we can trust in ourselves. And then it's more of a relying in that. 
And that comes also through trial and error, but I just want to put that out as an encouragement to start to test what is it that I know within myself that I can, and if you don't know, that's fine. Test it out. And then through time you learn, okay, this is real and it's true. Oh, here's the part that maybe I don't know if I can trust this. And then more and more we can rest in our own place. We go from uh, really to the place of knowing and being more than um, doing. So I went over for five minutes. Thank you for your, uh, sorry for that, for your patience and your kind attention. I hope this was useful. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the clothes shopping analogy, you know, you go to the store and there's all the whatever shirts are on the rack and you take them off and you try them on. And, you know, if one fits and you like it, price is right, you keep it. If you don't like it, you just put it back on the rack and move on. Um, if anything today has been useful, you keep it. And if not, then you just put it back on the rack and, and just move on. So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll just sit quietly for a few moments. <laughs>